You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, friends, this is something different than I've ever done before. Um, I'm being, I'm recording this in my office. This is not a sermon for whatever reason. John 7, 6 through 9 did not get recorded on the Sunday that I preached it. And, uh, there are people out there who, who they listen and they follow sermon by sermon, text by text, verse by verse as we work our way through different books of the Bible. And, uh, I would like to just take the time to explain what it was and to give you basically the content of what we covered when we, when we covered John 7. 6 through 9, uh, important section, and one that we refer to later on in the Gospel of John, and one that you will need to, to at least have some idea of what's in there nailed down in your mind, so that uh, you know going forward what the setting and the context is of the different events in John 7. So for that reason, I'm going to take a couple moments here. I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to basically kind of walk you through the passage and describe to you the applications and, and what's being taught there. And uh, that will help sort of set the stage for Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem in John chapter 10. John 7, verse 6. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. In Hebrews 12, verse 3, Jesus, uh, the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus and the fact that he endured such relentless hostility from sinners. He says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In the face of that open hostility and opposition, the the Lord did his work and was obedient and continued to testify to the world of his saving grace, his light, his love, but also of the deeds of wickedness that the world did. And one of the most striking features in all the Gospels, and John is certainly no exception, is the relentless open and intense opposition and hostility to Jesus and his ministry. In fact, Jesus uses the word hate to describe the world's response to him. And so intense was his hatred and the opposition, the, the hatred that he received and the opposition from the world that it culminated eventually in his death. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you and I must be willing to face that same opposition and hostility. We have to be willing to count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. And to be able to say with Paul that our, we desire to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's Philippians 3, 10 through 11. Do you want to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings? Do you have this desire to be conformed to his death? You and I have to confess that is not exactly the battle cry of the modern day church. In spite of the fact that Paul said in Acts 14, 22, that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. In spite of the fact that Jesus told us that the world would hate us. In spite of the fact that Paul says that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In spite of the fact that Peter says that Jesus suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. You and I are constantly bombarded with the message that it is possible for us as Christians to be both faithful to Christ and loved by the world. And there is in modern evangelicalism this constant desire to be accepted by the world. Evangelicals want to be embraced by the very people that Jesus said would hate us. In fact, these are the very people that Jesus promised would hate us. And many in the church today 
almost seem to think, or at least they act as if, Jesus came to the world to declare war against the world, and now he's left the church behind in order to broke a peace accord. And, and that's how many Christians approach it. We somehow think that we can be loved by the world, we don't want to be hated by the world, we want to be accepted by the world, respected by the world, applauded by the world, we want to be popular. And that is the entire seeker-sensitive movement in evangelicalism. It's based upon the belief that the church is most blessed and most effective when the world loves us most. That is completely the opposite of what Scripture teaches. In truth, the world is, no, is, is, is never impacted greater than when it hates the church. And the church is never more effective in evangelism and in the world as when the world hates it. Because the truth is, the more like Jesus we are, the more opposition from the world and from unbelievers, from the world system, that we should expect and we should receive. We've seen in John the various sources of opposition against Jesus in his ministry back in chapter 5. It was the religious leaders who opposed him, hated him, sought to kill him because he made himself equal with God and healed a man on the Sabbath. In chapter 6, it was the multitudes who hated him and left him, opposed him and left him. In chapter 7, we have seen his brothers oppose him. We've seen that the Jewish leadership wanted to kill him at the beginning of chapter 7. And now his brothers issued a challenge to him, saying basically, you need to go up publicly uh, to the capital of the world, to Jerusalem. It's inconsistent for you to seek to be a public figure and yet to remain in secret. So if you want to be public, then you need to go public. right? Don't, don't do your deeds in private. Go up to Jerusalem. Go up to the religious, cultural, political center of our nation and proclaim yourself there. See if there they will believe on you. If you're going to be the Messiah, if you're going to ex- say that you're the Messiah, go up to where the Messiah will be enthroned and make a public demonstration so that people will believe on you. So they suggest that if Jesus would do this, then people would believe. And, of course, you and I know that that would... That would not happen. People would not believe, no matter what sign or miracle he did. And we've seen that throughout this John's Gospel. So then in verses 6 through 9, that's going to set up the context. In verses 6 through 9, Jesus responds to the challenge that his brothers gave him. And in these verses, Jesus draws three contrasts between his brothers and himself. First, they had a different perspective on God's timing. That's verse 6. When Jesus said, my time is not yet here, your time is always opportune. Different perspective on God's timing. Verse 7, they had a different relationship to the world. Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. And then in verse 8, they had a different manner, we should say maybe even a different purpose or reason for attending the feast. Jesus says, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Three contrasts between Jesus and his brothers. Look at the first in verse 6. They had a different perspective on the world. Verse 6, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. Jesus makes reference to his time. That same theme is repeated down in verse 8 of chapter 7 when Jesus refers to my time has not yet fully come. You see it in verse 30 of chapter 7 when Jesus says, or when John writes that they were seeking to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet fully come. That's kind of a theme you see throughout John's uh, chapter 7 of John's gospel as John basically portrays Jesus as being the one who is in control of all of the events surrounding him. Right? Jesus is referring to the, the Father's divine timetable. What was happening was happening because it was God's timing and not man's timing. There are two different words for time that Jesus could have used. One of them is in verse 6. The first one he could have used is the word chronos. And that is the word which will seem familiar to you because we have a lot of different English words that kind of come out of that. Chronology, chronological, things like that. Chronos simply is a way of, of marking time. It just referred to the passage of time, time, strictly speaking. The one moment follows another. It's the chronology and the order of events, and one thing plods along after another. And as a way of marking time. The word that Jesus uses here is the second word, kairos. Kairos was a word that was used to describe 
time with particular reference to the events which took place in time. So it's not just the marking of time, the passing of time, one event after another. It's a reference to time, but the character of time or the character of events that take place within that period of time. Let me give you a, a, bit, a bit of an illustration to kind of give, uh, give you an idea of the difference between these two words. Very slightly mean. If I were to say to you, what time is it? You might look at your watch. You might say, well, it's 11.15, it's 12.30. 120, whatever, you would simply give me a number that makes reference to the passage of timing or what moment in the passage of time it is. But if I say to you, now is the time, you see the difference? When I say now is the time, I'm not making reference to just a moment in time or the passing of time. I'm, I'm, I'm saying there's something special about this time, that this time, this kairos, has a particular reference to events. This kairos has a particular significance. That's the way that Jesus is using it here. He, he uses the term kairos. He's, he's saying that the suitable time, the right time, the favorable opportunity for what was to take place was not yet. There would come a time in the life of our Lord when he would go up and present himself publicly to the people and be hailed as the king of David and ride into Jerusalem on a, on a colt. But that time was not yet. That would happen in six months. Jesus was aware of the Father's timetable and he knew that the time to be revealed as Israel's Messiah was not yet. That's what his brothers were pushing him to. That is what Jesus was denying was time for. Now, no doubt his brothers had no understanding of the full import of what Jesus was saying. In all likelihood, they just simply understood him to mean that now was not a good time for him to go up to Jerusalem. And they, they understood him to be saying, for some reason or another, this, this was not the right time. But Jesus was speaking of a depth of meaning that only he would completely understand. He knew that everything in his life was unfolding according to a divine timetable. He came to do all of the Father's will. He came to do everything that the Father gave him to do. From John's perspective in this gospel, everything in the life of the Lord is going perfectly according to, t to a divine plan. Jesus would give up his life right on schedule. No one would take it from him. He would lay it down of his own initiative. He's willing to give his life for his sheep. Everything we see in the life of Jesus, the miracles, the healings, the teachings, even the type and location of his travels, all unfold according to a divine timetable. And Jesus would not... And he could not allow anything to happen that was not part of the Father's divine plan. So there's a purpose behind all of the events in the Gospel, and that's kind of the idea that John is hinting at here. Everything's unfolding according to the time, and Jesus is saying the time for what you're talking about is not yet. He had to be about his Father's business, and he would do everything according to God's ordained time schedule. His brothers, on the other hand, did not shame the, share the same awareness or sensitivity to the Father's timetable. Being unbelievers, verse 5, they didn't give any thought to God's timing or God's intention. They didn't give any consideration of the providence of God or the sovereignty of God over their lives, nor did it even occur to him, occur to them. They modeled exactly the, the same type of thinking that unbelievers model. The world and unbelievers in it give, give no thought at all to God's will or their actions or how their actions fit in with God's will or how they can fulfill God's purposes and intentions for their life. Before I became a Christian, I, I gave no thought to these things. I didn't care what God's will was for me or for my life. I didn't give any thought to how God might be working out in my circumstances, his divine plan, his sovereign pleasure, or his redemptive purpose. I didn't give any thought to that at all. I didn't give any thought. I wasn't concerned with making wise decisions, making godly decisions, planning any move in accordance with what God's divine plan might be and his purposes in my life. His brothers were oblivious to what might be the perfect time or what might be the perfect opportunity, but Jesus was not. They had an entirely different relationship to time and to the Father's timing. Jesus says to them, your time is always opportune. In other words, it's always right. Your time is always right. All times are like to you. They gave no thought to God's timetable. It didn't matter to them when they went up. Today, the next day, next week. But unlike Jesus, they didn't face any danger in Jerusalem. 
And unlike Jesus, they would not face any hostility in Jerusalem. Nobody was seeking to kill them because the world did not hate them. And that's the second distinction between Jesus and his brothers. Not only did they have a different perspective on God's time, but second, they had a different relationship to the world. Verse 7, Jesus says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because if I testified of it that its deeds are evil. In that statement, Jesus takes a word, the word world, and he uses it in a bit of a different uh, way than his brothers had used it. His brothers had already used, made reference to the world back in verse 4. Show yourself to the world. But Jesus here takes the same word, cosmos, and he uses it in a little bit of a different sense. His brothers had used the word in reference, say, world in reference to the mass of humanity or the mass of people. And, and by that, that's all they're making reference to. They're, they're speaking of public demonstration before people. Show yourself to the world. But now in verse 7, Jesus seizes upon that word world, but he uses it in a different way. By world in verse 7, Jesus is not speaking about people. He's speaking about something that unbelieving people were a part of, the world system. It's the realm of evil, the mankind alienated from the life of God, hostility to God and his anointed. That's the world system. That's what we're told not to love in 1 John chapter 2. It's the devil's system, that way of thinking which leaves God out, the way of the way of life which doesn't give any consideration to God. It's the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. The world is made up of individual believers who, because of their commitment to worldly thinking and worldly life, are hostile and hateful to anything which is not worldly. And so the source of the hatred which Jesus is speaking of is the world. The Jewish leaders who were seeking to kill him would never have called themselves worldly, but the fact that they were seeking to kill Jesus shows that indeed their thinking, their lifestyle, their habits, their way of life was satanic, fleshly, and worldly. They were of the world. Jesus' brothers were of the world. And because of that fact, because they were not chosen out of the world, because they were not taken out of the world, because they weren't of the world, the world could not hate them. See, the world always loves its own. And because his brothers were part of the world, the world could not and was unable to hate them because his brothers were of the world. Jesus said in John 15:18, he said this to his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. See, friends, darkness doesn't attack darkness. Darkness doesn't hate darkness. Darkness hates the light, and darkness reserves all of its hatred and its fiercest resistance for Christ and for those who belong to Christ. And this was Jesus' own testimony, that the world hated him, because he was not part of the world. Though he was on this planet, he was not a, he was not worldly, he was not fleshly, he was not a child of Satan. He was different from unbelievers. His brothers, the Jews, the multitude, the common man, he was as different from all of them as possible for him to be. And how tragic is this statement when Jesus says, the world hates him? How tragic is that statement? The very fact that someone, or that anyone for that matter, could harbor hatred in their heart for Jesus, his testimony to the wickedness and the depravity and the bondage of the human heart to sin and to darkness. What had Jesus done to deserve such hatred? We know that it, what it was that revealed the hatred. He testified of it that his deeds were evil, but that doesn't deserve hatred. What did he do to deserve the hatred? What had he done to deserve enemies and be hated by those in the world? Had he sinned against them? Then we might understand their hatred. Had Jesus done wrong to them, but he didn't. He didn't sin against them. He, had, he did not sin. He knew no sin. He never sinned against anyone. Had he done something to deprive the world of its joys, its pleasures, its comforts, then we might understand its hatred. But he didn't do that. In fact, he was the one who made all their joys, their pleasures, and their comforts possible. He's the one who gave them life. He was the one who supplies from his hand all the sustenance for all his creatures. Every joy, every pleasure, every comfort, every convenience comes from him. It's his gift. And yet, even though he spent his life in ministry alleviating discomfort and creating joys and restoring pleasures, they hated him. You realize that every miracle he performed created joy or provided comfort 
or was a source of pleasure to somebody. Every dead person he raised from the dead brought joy to somebody. Every every blind man who was suddenly able to see experienced the comfort and the joy and the pleasure of sight. Or every deaf person that was made to hear suddenly received all of the joy and the pleasure, the comforts and the convenience of sound. And the, the mute who was able to speak, the demons who had to exercise, uh, demons exercise, the demon possessed who had ex- demons exercised from them, they suddenly enjoyed all of the deliverance and the pleasures of that deliverance that comes with it. What what had he done to deserve their hatred? Everything he ever did was a source of joy to people. He was a constant source of joy and pleasure. What did he do to deserve such hatred and hostility? Nothing. In reality, no man who has ever lived has been more undeserving of the hatred he received than Jesus was. All the kindness he showed, all the grace he gave, all his patience towards sinners should only have served to lead men to repentance and to elicit their trust in him. Their confidence and their adoration. He should have been the object of men's worship and instead he was the object of men's scorn. He should have received their undying and infinite love and all he got was their unrelenting hatred and hostility. No man was ever more unworthy of men's hatred than Jesus was and yet that is what he received. And no man was ever more worthy of men's love than Jesus was and yet that is what he was denied. It's horrible. It's horrible. What was it that sparked their hatred? He testified of it that its deeds are evil. There are two verbs in verse 7, both of them in a continuous tense, indicating an ongoing action or activity where verbs hates and testifies. Jesus' testimony of the evil deeds of the world was a continual ongoing activity, and the world's hatred of him was a continual ongoing activity. If Jesus had stopped testifying of the world that his deeds were evil, they might have stopped hating him. But his very presence, his very demeanor, his activity, all of his teaching bore witness to the light. He was the light coming into the world, gives light to all men. He's the light of the world. The the words that he spoke were light to a dark generation. His very presence among men was testimony of their evil deeds. Righteous people have that effect upon unbelievers. Yet testifying the world that his deeds are evil is in itself an act of a gracious act of love. Because in doing that you expose sin for what it is, and when sin is revealed, the heart is exposed, and then the sinner can face the problem of the heart and find his remedy in Christ. Exposing sin leads one to eternal life. Exposing iniquity leads one to the remedy for their sin problem. That is a gracious thing. That is a loving thing. The world should have responded with, with love to one who would tell them so honestly of their desperate need. Yet man's love for darkness and his unquenchable thirst for sin leads him in his depravity to hate the very one who can deliver him from his bondage. And what was the cause of the hatred? J.C. Rouse says this, quote, It was not merely his claims to be received as the Messiah. It was not merely the high-end spiritual doctrine he preached. It was rather his constant testimony against the sinful lives and the wicked practices of the many in his day. That adultery, covetousness, hypocrisy were rife and common among the leading Pharisees is evident from many expressions in the Gospels. It was our Lord's witness against these darling sins that enraged his enemies. Close quote. If you boldly confront sin, then you can expect hatred. Erasmus used to say that Luther might have had an easy life if he had not touched the Pope's crown and the monk's bellies. See, Luther attacked the iniquity and the debauchery of the papacy, papacy and the unfettered lusts of the monasteries and the monks. And when he did so, he elicited the hatred of men. Rome wanted him dead because Luther constantly called attention to their darling sins. If your life is a testimony against wickedness, you'll be hated. If the world feels completely comfortable in your presence, something is wrong. If you do not stand out in such a way that the world system recognizes that you are different and opposes you as such, then something is tragically wrong. You don't stand up and rail against sins. 
you know, stand up and, and, and proclaim openly, hold up picket signs or none of that. It's not that those things are wrong. They can be right. But that's not necessary to elicit the world's hatred. You might do those things. But that's not necessary for the world to hate you. All that is necessary for the world to hate you is for you to live a consistent testimony of a holy life. A testimony of a holy life is sufficient to condemn the world and elicit its hatred. Because you don't laugh at certain jokes. You don't snicker over certain double entendres. You don't enjoy the same entertainment. You don't listen to the same music. You don't frequent the same establishments. You don't do the same things. You and your co-workers who are unbelievers do not partake of the same things. It can be as mild as that. And you receive hatred from the world. I'm not suggesting it's inappropriate to stand boldly and vocally against sin, evil deeds, wickedness, and justice. It is appropriate to do those things. But it's not necessary in order to be hated by the world. You don't have to verbally condemn someone for them to feel condemned. All you have to do is walk in the light. And when you do that, don't be surprised the world hates you. An evildoer does not care to have a sin rebuked. And when you shine the light of a pure and holy testimony, either through words or actions, you are going to engender the same hatred that the world deserved for Jesus. And it is a delusion to think and to suppose that the world would respond in any other way. Fallen man does not respond positively to the light because he loves darkness. This is another reason why people cannot come to Christ unless the Father draws them, because those who are in the world hate the Son. They don't want to have their evil deeds exposed. Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, John 3.20. This is the bondage and darkness of unredeemed man. It's not just some unredeemed men, but this is all unredeemed men. And so a work of God is necessary in the heart to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh and to overcome that enmity, that natural enmity against God. God must do a work and deliver men from the world. And God must do a work and deliver men from their hatred of the Son. So when you realize the reason behind the world's hatred for the church, their hatred for Christ and for his people, then it should be obvious to you how misguided is any attempt to court the world's favor. Some Christians labor under the delusion that if uh, if we only loved the world more, the world would not hate us as much. Right? The problem is that we don't love the world enough. Well, some people think if we fed them more, if we took care of the poor more, if we just showed more compassion, more love, more sentiment, then the world would love us, not hate us. Friends, the, the world does not hate us because we don't love it enough. That's not why the world hates us. Could anybody show more love for humanity than Jesus did? than God did in Christ? Was Jesus not loving enough? Is that why the world hated him? Some Christians labor under the delusion that the world hates us because we're inconsistent. If we only were more consistent and lived, lived more consistent Christian lives, if we were only more, you know, got rid of our faults and our failures, if we, if we could be better Christians, the world would not hate us as much. Really? Is it because of some inconsistency in the life of Jesus that the world hated him? Is it not possible that the world will hate us for the very reasons that it hated Jesus and has nothing to do with lack of love or lack of consistency or lack of good deeds, but because of a holy life, because we testify of the world that its deeds are evil, and when we testify of the world that its deeds were evil, they will hate us. That's the source. That's the reason for the hatred. Friends, the world does not hate the doctrine of the Christian church. They're postmodern. They don't care. They don't care what you believe. They don't understand your doctrinal statement. They don't, it was true to you, true, not true to them. Blah, blah, blah. They don't care about any of that. So the world doesn't hate our doctrine. The world does not care what we believe. They think we're delusional. Our doctrinal statement does not elicit the hatred of the world. The world doesn't hate our faults and our failures. They don't hate, they share our faults and our fears. They don't hate our inconsistencies. And they don't hate our lack of, hate us because we don't love them enough. They hate us because we live a holy life. You want the world to love you? Then you deny your Lord. 
You dive into sin. You drink iniquity like water. You give up the fight against your flesh. Refuse to confront sin. Be silent about all things righteous and holy. And the world will love you. The world will adore you. The world will even make you its pastor. The one way that the church can be loved by the world is if the church ceases to become the church by being just like the world. Ironically, during the same week that I was preparing this message, I was also researching a, a, a church plant of uh, somebody that I know is planting a church, and it was up in Canada, and watching the video that was posted on the church website, the video said that, um, the video was answering the question, why another church? So it's basically a two and a half minute video explaining the whole philosophy of church ministry, church growth, what sets them apart. And the money quote of the video, the money quote was the part where they explained how they got the idea for the church. And the narrator says this, listen, he says, a group of us were sitting around starting to ask the question, why don't we create a church for people who don't like church? <laughs> Not brilliant? Why don't we create a church for people who don't like church? So I watched that. I came home at lunch. I was sharing this with my family around the lunch table. And one of my children said, how do you do that? And I said, exactly. Do you realize how utterly impossible that is? The only way to, be, to, to do that, well, you can't do it, but the only way you can get the world to love you is to remove the one thing, or I should say the one person that people hate. And when he is removed, you no longer have a church. When you remove all that the world hates about the church, you no longer have a church, and ironically, you no longer have an impact on the world. Friends, the world doesn't hate our building, or our furniture, or our format, or our worship band. It doesn't hate our lighting. It doesn't hate any of those things. It hates the holy lives of Christians. It hates the light. It hates Jesus. Let me, let me give you proof of this. Just a couple weeks ago, in fact, the proof of this was in the Super Bowl just a couple weeks ago. You had over, I don't know, close to 80,000 people that piled into one of these stadiums. Now, I have been to, I've been to football games uh, three times in my life. Three times in my life, right? Two in San Francisco, one in Seattle. At, n at neither of those two locations, and on none of those three occasions, was the parking even remotely close to convenient. I had to walk or take a bus. I spent half of the day, or three quarters of the day, actually, getting to into, out of, and away from that facility. Hours in traffic, hours in the parking lot, hours dealing with all of that hassle, right? And, and you get into the, you get into the stadium, you sit down in these cramped little seats, and you got people sitting around you that, that stink, they smell, they're sweaty, they're obnoxious. You go to the bathrooms, they're dirty, they're smelly, you stand in line, they're inconveniently located, you have to walk past a ton of advertising to get to them. Then you go back and you sit down in those tiny little seats, but people will pile into that, and they will spend not an hour, but three hours minimum sitting in those seats, standing next to those seats. They will stand at all the appropriate times. They don't have to be seated. They don't have to be comfortable. They don't have to be convenient. None of that stops them from coming. See, friends, the world does not hate our building. It does not hate our parking. It does not hate our nursery. It does not hate our format. It does not hate our lighting, our sound system, the seats. It doesn't hate any of that. What the world hates is Jesus. And the only way you can get the world to love the church is to take Jesus entirely out of the mix. And then you no longer have the church. You no longer have the church. So Jesus contrasts the different perspectives on God's timing, different relationship to the world, and then third in verse 8, and we'll just briefly mention this, a different manner or purpose for attending the feast. He says in verse 8, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast because my time has not yet fully come. Since they had an entirely different perspective on God's timing, and since they were, had an entirely different relationship to the world, they would also have an entirely different way, purpose, and reason for attending the feast. So Jesus said, you go out to the feast, I don't go up because my time's not fully come. 
See, so attending the feast and leaving at whatever time they chose, that was perfectly normal in their situation. Because they were related to God the way they were, because they had a relationship with the world, they were not hated in Jerusalem. Their lives were not in danger. They gave no time to God's, uh, no thought to God's timetable. So they could just go up whenever. But Jesus would not go up with them, not on their terms, and not for their purposes, and not in their timing. Because his time had not yet come. Jesus would attend the feast, but he would do so in a different way, at a different time, for a different reason than his brothers. Now, some people look at verse 8 and compare it to verse 10 and say, well, you have a contradiction here. Jesus says in verse 8, I'm not going up to this feast, but then in verse 10 he goes up. Verse 9, he stays there. What do we have going on there? There's a lot of consternation for some people to kind of try and work that out. There's really no mystery there when you understand the context and what's going on, but we'll save that for next time, and that is, in fact, what we address in uh, the next sermon, beginning in verse 10 and going through verse 13. Well, that's kind of an overview of the applications and the dealing of the text, the exposition of the text that I gave during the message. Thanks for taking the time. I hope this was helpful and sort of helping set the context for you in your study of John chapter 7. Blessings to you. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.